amen and good morning. Now, I'm going to ask my wife if she could go give me a bottle of water. My mouth was a little dry, but I was afraid if I walked out after pastoral prayer, it might alarm some people. So, if, uh, so Amber, I hate to put you on the spot. Or Cohen. Does he know where that's at? Okay. We'll see when he comes back, if he makes it back. But no, my mouth is just a little bit dry and was a little bit concerned that if I walked out of here... Uh, Kevin, you're on the list next, really. So that's just kind of, that's just kind of it. Okay. You can make your way to Genesis chapter 49. Now I know, um, last week we were supposed to be in Genesis chapter 48. I decided to kind of move on with our, with our series. Once we're done with this series, we've got a series, uh, I'm starting called Where the Battle Rages, God's, uh, our, our problems in God's word, or our world in God's word, and just going to talk over some things like God's will, spiritual warfare, the government, money, just some topical things as we work our way through the rest of the summer. Wayne Vanderweer will be here to, to, uh, to share with us as well. But we're in Genesis chapter 49, I'll touch a little bit on Genesis 48 as we get into the, the message, but, but uh, Genesis chapter 49. Thanks, bud. You got it. Look at that. Your boss. Okay. Genesis 49. Let's read this, uh, just the chapter. And we'll keep moving. Genesis 49, beginning in verse 1. It says, Then Jacob called his sons and said... Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. And you'll notice this is kind of in poetic form. So this is a little bit of a switch. It kind of switches from narrative sort of story to a poem, poetic form. He says, Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let not my soul come into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of all peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. A lot of hard things to kind of untangle there. Zebulun 
shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed, down, he bowed his shoulder to bear, and he became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backward. I will wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow. A fruitful bow by a string, his branches, branches run over the wall. The archers attacked him bitterly, shot at him, and adra- address, uh, harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you. By the Almighty who will bless you with blessing of heaven. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breasts of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessing of my parents. Up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. And then verse 28, All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them, as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessings suitable to him. Now today will be a time of explanation of kind of what's going on with a couple principles for you and I to walk away with at the end. But in order to get the setting of this chapter, we we really need to jump back to chapter 48, which we weren't able to get to, obviously, last week. Chapter 48 slows things down a lot. It's an entire chapter on one conversation that extends into chapter 49, And it probably, the conversation didn't last too long. It takes place, if you look back at uh, chapter 48, it takes place at Jacob's bedside. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. It was told to Jacob, your son Joseph is here. So Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. So it's slow. It takes place at Jacob's bedside. Bedside, And this is probably a scene that we could all relate to because it's happened probably to all of us, being at the bedside of someone who is dying. Uh, as a hospice chaplain in my previous ministry, I was often uh, by the side of those who were about to die. And if Jacob were around today, he would probably be on hospice care. And this is the setting that we find ourselves, this is something we can all relate to. I was often advised by my mentor, Warren Wearsby, that whenever I made a hospital visit or a hospice care visit, that, that I, when I made it, I'd keep it short. If you've been around people in the hospital, if they're seriously ill or if they're elderly, they run out of energy very quickly. So extending a visit could turn your encouragement into encroachment. And that's the picture we get here. Jacob is old, he's ill, He's blind, and in order to even sit up, he has to summon all of his strength. 
And so even for a guy like this, even a short conversation could really exhaust him. Now, in between chapter 47 and 48, about 17 years have passed. And chapter 48 and 49 are just the two final conversations that Jacob had. So again, everything just really slows down at the end here. And these are Jacob's last words. Now, in chapter 48, which we didn't get to, we really get to peer into the adoption ceremony of Ephraim and Manasseh. Jacob, which would have been an interesting, by the way, I mean, this is not my plan, but it's interesting that that passage would have landed on Father's Day if I were able to preach it, but it was about Joseph's two Egyptian sons and about Jacob adopting Joseph's two Egyptian sons as if they were his own sons. One day God would bless Jacob's descendants in the land of Canaan and Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons, would share in that same blessing because Jacob adopted them as his very son. And it's an immensely important thing that Jacob is doing and that God is telling him to do. And it's really the crowning moment of Jacob's faith. It's interesting that out of all the things Jacob ever did, the, the crowning moment, the thing that proved that he walked by faith in God is the fact that he adopted Ephraim and Manasseh into his family. And so look at the screen, 11, uh, Hebrews 11, verse 21. It says that by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. This was it. This was the great act of worship, the grand moment that showed Jacob believed God and his promises. We recall that when Jacob was standing in front of Pharaoh, he described his life as short and evil, difficult and weary. And in Genesis 48 and 49, what we see is Jacob using over and over again the word blessing. As a matter of fact, at the end of our passage, in verse 28, it says, All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each of them with the blessing suitable to him. It's all about the blessing. Now the words bless, blessed, and blessing are used about 500 times in the Bible. And ironically enough, it's also used over 500 times a day by the average Baptist. Warren Wiersbe says that a blessing is any act of God that brings him glory by accomplishing his will and helping his people grow and to do his will. Now as you look through Jacob's word and as we read through this, you might wonder how this could be called a blessing. After all, the first three sons get their sins called out in front of everybody. They get their sins called out and they even lose part of God's blessing on their lives. And you can wonder how this is a blessing because other of the kids, other of the sons, just kind of basically go on to live basically normal, insignificant, mediocre lives. And only a few of them are esteemed as ones who are going to do great things. But here's the thing, and here's kind of the underlying thing of all of this that we're just going to continue to touch on. They are all, as, recipro- as recipients of God's promise, all of them would receive the promises of God. 
Even though some of them got their sin called out, even though some of them, you know, their dad basically says, hey, you're going to have a good life, but, I mean, Benjamin, he's going to be a ravenous wolf. He's just, I mean, he's going to be all about it. Judah, he's going to be this leadership guy. Joseph, I mean, man, yeah, that guy is going to have a lot of fruit. Some of you guys, you're going to be a hardworking donkey. That's what your future looks like. It's a reminder to me that when we get to heaven, there won't be any pouting and there won't be any boasting. There will be glory given to God who is our promise keeper. There will be glory given to Jesus Christ. We will give glory, honor, and praise to the Lamb who was slain for us, who conquered sin and death. And it's important to use truths about God that we learn from the past sins and failures to help us in the present. Because that's kind of the theme of the message. If you notice uh, the, the title of the message is the title of the message, The Future Your Past Can't Steal. Because the whole idea of this, this poem, this poetic form of blessing that Jacob is giving, is he's talking about the future of his sons. But how he does it is he's using their past actions and telling them how that will affect or influence their future. But he's still, understand, and the understanding is, is that they're not going to lose the ultimate promises of God to inherit the land. And so that's going to be the same for us as we think about the future. It's important to use the truths about God we learned from the past to help us in the present. Not to use the torments of past sins and failures to tor- torment us more. Uh, I mean, I mean, I'm reminded of the importance of, of having a reservoir of God's truth as we face both today and our future. Many of you, many Christians, I think, have a reservoir of sin and regrets, and that's what they use in their life. They use that reservoir of sin and regrets, of things that they hope nobody ever finds about, out about, the things they can't believe they did. They use that reservoir of sin and regret, and that's what drives their present, and that's what gives them the lens to look to the future. But it's important to look back, and yes, our sins and mistakes will be there, but we must look back and see God, his truth, and what we've learned and, uh, and again, I'm reminded of the importance of having a reservoir of God's truth with us as we face trouble with uh, a helpful illustration about Corey Tinboom. You've heard me talk about Corey Tinboom before. She's one of my spiritual heroes. And uh, she, she shared how her father taught her two things as a child that would be the very things that came to mind throughout her life, especially as she faced the horrors of Nazi Germany and the concentration camp that she was in. And one was when she was a young girl. When she was a young girl, her father would nightly read the Bible, and her father read these words from Psalm 38. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. And she talks about in her autobiography how how she stops and she thinks, God is a hiding place What is there to hide from? And little did she know that would be the verse that would become a rock upon which she stood. Another illustration was from her father when she was a little girl. And she read a poem in school that described a man, quote, a young man whose face was not shadowed by sex sin. And as a little girl being six years old, she had heard about sin, 
And she heard about sex and, of course, didn't learn much about the sex part of things. And it just constantly wore on her mind. Until finally she couldn't take it any longer. And she was with her father and they were, they were, they were passengers in a train. And she said, Father, what is, it, what is sex sin? And her father responded by asking her to, to carry his travel case, which was full of uh, supplies for his watch business and his watch repair business. And he asked her to carry it off the train. And so she pulled and she tugged and she yanked and she tried to lift it. And she, she said to her father, Father, it's, it's too heavy for me. I, I can't carry it. To which her father replied, It would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same way, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. And as she grew up to be in her 50s, in her 60s, going through the senseless horrors and beatings and mistreatment of the Holocaust and of Revenbrook concentration camp, she would often pray the exact same prayer. Heavenly Father, I don't understand this. It's too heavy for me to bear. Bear it for me. It's important that in our past, we don't just look at all the past sins and the failures and make those the things we focus on. Make those the things that we try to use to navigate our life. And Genesis 49 is going to help us with that. Genesis 49, as I mentioned, is in this poetic form. So there's a lot of metaphors, there's a lot of word pictures that really make it hard to interpret. But these are quite literally Jacob's last words. But here's at least, I want to give you three ways to kind of make sense of this, okay? Because I, I know it's a difficult passage to understand. The first thing is you need to understand the topic of the, the poem, the poetic speak here, speech here. And you find the topic right away from verse 1, where Jacob says, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Okay, so there's the topic. Jacob is saying, I'm about to tell you your future. Second, the theme. Okay, so how or what is, he, is, is it that Jacob wants to tell them about their futures? And what Jacob is doing is not only is he telling them about their futures, but in every circumstance, even the ways that aren't so obvious, he's using their past to show them what their futures will look like. And so, put another way, Jacob is saying, here's your past, and this is showing something of your future and your progeny as well. But yet, none of them are completely left out of God's promises to inherit the promised land. We don't always get the idea, but that's the basic detail, okay? So the topic is, here's your future. The way he's doing that is, here's your past, and here's what that says about your future, and Jacob is right. And third, the third thing you need to understand is he does this by cataloging each of the kids. Okay, he just goes kid by kid, child by, and I say kid, they're not kids anymore, they're well-grown men. Uh, um, but he just goes, goes son by son to kind of talk about their futures. Okay, so the topic 
is the future of Israel's 12 sons. The theme is their past actions will in some way affect the circumstances of their future generations. And the flow of it is that he's cataloging the future from oldest to youngest with one exception uh, through all of that. So here's what I want to do. I want to go through all of these very quickly. Some of them won't take any time at all because it's pretty self-explanatory. And I want to leave you with two principles when it comes to your past and my past and what hope we have as we look forward. It starts with Reuben, the oldest. It's kind of broken in two parts. I mean, it kind of sounds good to begin with, right? Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might, the fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and power. So that's good. Well, then get to the second part. Reuben, You're as unstable as water, and you're not going to have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. You defiled it. You went up to my couch. Reuben was the first fruits of Jacob's strength. He was looked upon to be the preeminent leader of the family, to be an example both of integrity and strength. Yet Jacob says, you're unstable as water. And he explains why. This goes all the way back to Genesis 35. He slept with one of Jacob's concubines in Jacob's bed. Genesis 35:22 says, "While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it." And that's it. That's the end of the story. They didn't say anything about it, but it's coming up now. And Jacob was telling Reuben that he did not have the dignity, dignity nor the strength to lead because he was driven by his lust and an insatiable desire to fulfill his sinful desires. So instead of fulfilling the duties and privileges of leading the family, he fulfilled his own lusts. That's what that means. And then we get to Simeon and Levi. And it says here, Simeon and Levi are brothers. And you kind of have to say, no, duh. At this, right? But here's what I think it's saying. There's all, you know, the larger the family you have, there's just two kids. They're just always together, right? They, they, they think the same. They, they enjoy hanging out together. Where you find one, you'll find the other. Whenever there's, whenever there's you know, uh, mischievous stuff going on, if, it's, if, if Simeon's involved, and so is Levi. So it's almost like saying these two are, you know, two peas in a pod sort of thing. They're just, they're always together. They're alike. They're the same way. They, you always find them together. They're doing things together. But the problem is, when they're together, they're causing problems. Any parents? Raise, no, don't raise your hand. And, there, and, this, is, and, this, is, and this, is, uh, this is why in the promised land, both of their clans will be divided up. And I wish we had time to go through and talk about how all this ends out playing, but we just, we just simply don't. But these two are called out for their cruel anger. Notice he says here, he says, weapons of violence are their swords. Weapons of violence are these swords. That is, when they use their swords, and this goes back to Genesis 34. In Genesis 34, the Shechemite, a prince of Shechem raped their younger sister. And as much as seeking justice for that was right and good, these guys went crazy and killed all the men 
and just started using those swords to wipe out anybody they saw. And they were called out for their cruel anger. Their swords are swords of violence. They used their swords against the Shechemites. They were not seeking justice. They were slaughtering innocent people. And they were so filled with rage. Notice in verse 6 it says, In their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. So you get the idea. They're just, they're just ready to kill it all. Their anger was not satisfied with killing the innocent people. They're, they had to go after even the animals as well. Now their reason for doing this again was that the prince of the land raped their younger sister and to seek justice for that rape was completely right. To mercilessly kill those who had no part was wrong and they were motivated by ruthless spite and in response to this, Jacob says, you know, so word, let me not come into their council. What is a council? We think of a council meeting. A council is a group of people that get together to make a decision or to have advice. And it reminds us of Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the council of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. What's, what's he saying here? Is he saying is, like, there is a, a, there's literally a way called counsel of the wicked, or that there's literally a seat called seat of scoffers, and if there's a seat that is labeled seat of scoffers, you don't sit in it? No, of course not. What he's saying here is don't participate in evil plans or evil deeds. And so when Jacob looks at these two sons, he sees two sons that when they get together, they're planning evil deeds. Proverbs talks about if sinners entice you, don't give in. They're just waiting, they're waiting in blood to go after people. Don't participate in evil plans or evil deeds. We come to Judah next as we Make our way quickly through this. Judah is a conqueror. He's dominant over his adversaries. He's a great leader of the people. He's a lion who, he's called a a lion cub, a lioness, and a lion. So the idea here is nobody dare rouse this guy. In verse 10, is really the crux of the whole thing. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. There would be one who comes from the tribe of Judah that would draw the obedience of the people to himself. And I'd like to introduce you to him. It's Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. Where the elder said to me, weep no more. Behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has Conquered. There is going to be a conqueror that comes from this conquering tribe that would outdo anything Judah would conquer. And Jesus is that lion. He came to prey on death. You think about lions, they like to prey on their prey. Jesus prayed on death. He put his hands on death and sin and Satan's neck. And devoured it. And as it says here that Judah is a lion who's gone up from his prey. Well Jesus after he got done devouring Satan and sin and death. He got up from his prey. He'll rule for all people for all time. He alone is worthy of worship. So much we could say about Jesus coming from Judah. But that's who the lion is. 
We come next to Zebulun, who, by the way, is the one out of order. Because, again, in every family, you've just got one kid who's just always gets out of order. You know, you're going in order, but the one kid wants to be before everybody else. And that's what we have here. This is Zebulun. And, uh, and here, Zebulun, not much is said. He's going to dwell in the Sidon area where he's going to be involved in being a haven for ships. Issachar is next, and this guy is the strong worker. Right? He's going to be strong like a donkey. He's not afraid to get his hands dirty. When it says he became, at the end there, your translation may say he becomes a servant of forced labor. I don't think this means he comes, becomes a slave, but that he just isn't afraid to get his hands dirty. He's not afraid to do the jobs that eventually all the slaves are going to put to. So again, you kind of get that idea of who uh, Issachar is. Dan is a judge uh, in verse 16 through 18. Uh, he talks about being a serpent. Again, you can, it's, it's debated on, take this, do we take this a good way or a bad way? Is it like a serpent where he's like crafty from Genesis 3 and he's going to you know, kind of make people stumble? And, and again, all these people, if you read their history, none of them are perfect in any way. But I think Dan is a judge, a, a kind of man that defends his strength is greater than his size. Of say, like a small snake that can really give it to a large horse, a large animal. So he may be small, but he's able to strike panic in the largest of animals. Animals. Gad is next, verse 19. Uh, Gad, you know, he, people are going to raid Gad, but Gad is going to raid at their heels. So Gad has this ability to bounce back. He's not able to go head-to-head with anyone, but he has the ability to kind of be mobile and attack from the rear. That's kind of what's going on. Asher. Look at Asher. This is an interesting one. Asher's food shall be rich and shall yield royal delicacies. This is like, this is the happy family. This is the guy who's just, he's going to enjoy his work. His work's going to be fruitful. His yields are going to feed royalty. And he's just kind of the happy tribe. Naphtali. Now, Naphtali knows is a, is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns, okay? This is, this is your ideal, this good-looking family, okay? We all see those families, and she's like, man, that's just a good-looking family, you know? From top to bottom, they're just a good-looking family. That's Naphtali, just good-looking family, fruitful and beautiful progeny. And overall, there's little known about Naphtali, even in the rest of Scripture. Now, Joseph gets the biggest blessing out of all of them. And we won't take time to go through this line by line, but it should become no surprise to us that Joseph is kind of going to be the one to get the big blessing. He's a fruitful bough. The the archers, which I think are are his brothers, they took aim at him. They took their shots. They harassed them severely. Yet he stood strong. But then he gives us a bunch of words on why, why that was even possible. Notice what it says in verses 24, 25. He says, his, he was made, uh, his bow remained unmoved by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there, the, the shepherd, the stone, the father, God Almighty. It's just all these lists of who God is. The mighty one of Jacob gave him strength. The shepherd walked with him in tenderness and care. The stone that Jesus is, gave him stability. God Almighty was with him to give him untold blessings. And then Benjamin. Now this guy, there's a lot of, there's a lot of animal representations, but 
Benjamin kind of gets the fierce one, other than the lion. Benjamin's a ravenous wolf. In the morning, he devours his prey, and at evening, he divides his spoil. What this simply means is that his descendants are going to be very aggressive warriors. And again, if you want to follow the history of the Benjamites, there's some things that don't look too good in his future. Anyways, they are actually ravenous in a lot of severely negative and sinful ways. Now, we blew through all that, and it's quick. But that's the idea of what Jacob is saying here. But I want you to notice, as we went through this, there is a mixture of great sins, great conquests, just average, normal, day-to-day tribes. And Jacob, again, he's using their past to foreshadow their future. Now, when it comes to you and to I and to me, when it comes to our past or even our presence, we might say, we might say those things. We might say, I've got such grievous sins in my past. Or maybe you say, I've been sinned against in grievous ways, like Joseph. You may say, you may look around at other people and say, well, man, I don't have the beautiful family. Like, man, that family just has it all together. You may say, well, man, I'm, I'm nothing like just kind of those other guys who are just going to be, you know, a haven for ships or they're going to be hard workers or just kind of normal day-to-day stuff. I'm, I'm never anything like the Judah and the Benjamin. You know, here's just me over here with my mediocre life, never really accomplishing anything great for the Lord. Or perhaps there's a number of other things running through your mind. We must remember that even with all of this, <coughs> excuse me, And even with the future sins that these very tribes would face, none of these tribes, none of these tribes were put out of God's covenant blessing. Christians can begin to look at their lives through the lens of their past and their personality instead of the gospel. And listen, our past and our personality are very significant things. They can help us understand our tendencies and they can help us understand who we are and how we're wired. But when we fill our minds with regrets and shame because of what we see in our past or because of what we see in our personality or because of what we see in another tribe that's doing way better than we are or more things for the Lord or has more money or whatever, we will easily become discouraged. And as much as there may, you may be able to identify with some of the sons of Israel, my point this morning is not for you to walk away with here saying, okay, now which one of these tribes describes me most? That's, just, that's not the point at all. The point is not to figure out which one of these tribes you can most closely relate to and work things out from there. Remember, the big idea is that God was faithful to his promises to the sons of Israel, notwithstanding their often sinful past or even their normal everyday allotments. So here's the main idea that Jesus has for us in this passage as I uh, begin to conclude conclude with our two little principles I want to walk away with. Here's the main idea of the passage for us. Since Jesus has promised his followers an eternal inheritance, we must be confident that he will get us there regardless of our past. And I'll just even say right now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, then your past sin 
and your present sin will lead you to eternal judgment where you will suffer with unspeakable suffering the consequences for your sin. But if you are a follower of Jesus, your past sins, your foolish mistakes, while yes, they may have consequences in life, will not keep you from what God has promised you for all eternity. Because here's where I think many Christians are. Many Christians in their, let me, let me not say in their, in our sinful fallenness, elevate our past sinful fallenness above the faithfulness of God. Many Christians use their past to speak for God. Many Christians use their past to change the validity of his promises. Many Christians use their past, perhaps even unknowingly, to nullify God's faithfulness. Many Christians use their past to take God's place as judge and redeemer. And listen, again, I'm not saying you haven't sinned or that you haven't even sinned in grievous ways or that there are real-life consequences coming from whatever sin it was in the past. What I am saying is that if you are a follower of Jesus, the gospel is greater than your past and that your sins, your regrets, your personality won't negate the gospel promises for your life. End of story. What do you see when you look in the mirror? Uh, That sounds like a tacky question. But what do you see when you look in the mirror? When you look in the mirror, what is it that you would say about you? Some see a failure. If you're asking me, when I look in the mirror, I see a failure. When I look in the mirror, I see a phony. When I look in the mirror, I see someone who doesn't measure up. When I look in the mirror, I see a Christian who is nothing like all the other Christians who've got it all together. In all of this, there is only one tribe that stands out. And the only reason that tribe stands out is because of the one, and let me emphasize the one who would come from that tribe, the Lord Jesus, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Our God has shown us grace upon grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to show you one example of that grace before we get into rest. Remember the Levites were told, like, because of your anger, you're, you're going to be scattered, you're going to lose the blessing of having land? You want to see God's grace in that? Numbers 18.23. The Levites shall do the service of the tent of the meeting. That's who God chose. These ruthless killers are the ones God chose to do service of the tent of meeting. And it does say they shall bear their iniquity. And it shall be a perpetual statue through your generations and among all the people of Israel that you shall have no inheritance. So what your father Jacob said, yeah, it's true. There's the consequences. But now I want you to look at how this plays out, and it plays out far beyond what we're going to read in Second Chronicles 35. But Josiah here, he says, and he said to the Levites, notice this, who taught all Israel and who were holy to the Lord. But the holy ark in the house of that Solomon, the son of David, built, you need to carry it on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people, Israel. Jacob just got done saying, don't let me come into your council. And here they are. The one in whose council the Israelites relied on to teach them and show them the ways of God. God is a gracious God, full of compassion, 
Yes, the division was a result of their sin, but God's plan was to use it to elevate the Levites to the greatest possible place to be in the service of God, leading Israel's worship, and teaching others about God and the proper way to worship him. So let's get it. Those two principles for Christians when it comes to your past, when it comes to our past. Number one, if there's sin in your past, you must face it. And then you must rest in Christ's forgiveness. We will not experience the blessing of fellowship with Christ if there's sin that has not been confessed, repented of, replaced, and revealed in an increasingly faithful walk with Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, Christian, listen to me on this. Your forgiveness is not dependent on how many times you've confessed over that sin. Your forgiveness is not dependent on, well, it's been about 30 years since I've sinned, never really dealt with it, but it should have been long enough by now. It's not dependent on asking God to say, hey, God, I think I've, have I atoned for my sin enough? Like, are we good now? We all have areas we want to change. Our past, my past, your past, it's often filled with a painful reminder that we are today what even we were in the past. We keep the same struggles, we indulge in the same sins, and we believe Satan's greatest lie that your sin is unconquerable. Change is unattainable, and so Satan says, enjoy being miserable the rest of your life. Your past might be filled with inconsistent or even mostly non-existent Bible reading. And you just feel like manure. It, may be feel, it might be filled with a certain sin or an action or an attitude. And you look at today and you say, well, that's not just my past, it's my right now. And we've all said it. Why can't I change? Why can't I change? Well, Christian, change is about facing our sin, owning it, confessing it, repenting, and then pursuing Christ-likeness. That's the goal we have. That's God's goal. For many of you, if you I mean, if you hear this verse one more time, it'll just drive you crazy because you keep hearing this verse in the context, Philippians 1.6. And we even talked about an ABF. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I get it. I've heard it. I'm still struggling. I'm not, this, this verse means nothing to me. It's not coming true. And so you keep trying self-improvement methods. You keep trying to post a few Christian slogans on social media. Your your moralism, and you're maybe even severe to the body, and you beat your body into submission, and you go on and on in the cycle of failure and discouragement. And you're hoping all this stuff just goes away. My fellow past holders, the gospel tells us that Christ has swallowed the wrath for our sin, that he has called us to rest in his forgiveness. Your standing with God guarantees that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yes, face your sin. Yes, own it. Yes, confess. Yes, repent. Yes, rest in the gospel. Holiness starts there with Christ's forgiveness. But if you have done that, if you said, yes, I've confessed it and I've repented of it and I've, I've striven to walk a new life and I've put on the Lord Jesus Christ, then you've been forgiven. And the Lord does not count it against you. 
Let's move on to our second point as we bring things to a close here. If there is low self-esteem or low self-image, you must believe what God says about you. I can't help but think that these are probably the two greatest joy robbers of the Christian life. Past sins and just feeling... What's the right appropriate word here? Just feeling like just total crud because of what we look at and how we feel about ourselves. And self-esteem is normally a package deal with self-value, self-love, self-abasement, self-consciousness, self-absorption, self-confidence, and self-centeredness. It comes from our failings in the past, and it tells us we need to find something to give us value. Because I just feel so cruddy about all this stuff in the past. There's got to be something in this world that will give me value. It often comes from ungodly comparisons. Man, I'm not like them. But when it comes to our past, and all of us, all of us, including the man behind the pulpit, has a past where we say, I just can't believe I did that. Have you ever said that? And as we just mentioned, yes, when there is sin, we need to own it, confess it, repent. We need to walk by faith in Christ, denying sin and self, putting on love, joy, peace, and truth. But I love what Leslie Vernick says. She says, if you become aware of sinful patterns in your life or some internal weaknesses that you need to work on, I hope you ask God for forgiveness for Jesus' sake and then ask him for the Spirit's help to change. But then she says this, but understand this important truth. You will never get to a place where you don't see your sins and weaknesses. Never will you get to the point where you don't see your sins and weaknesses. And so the question is, what do we do with the ugliness we see in our past? And if we were to raise our hands in total honesty, we would probably have to admit that when we look at others, we think, man, I just wish, that person seems just to not have to deal with anything. Like, they're, just, like they're so good as a Christian. It's like, they have no, it's like they've done nothing wrong. They've got nothing bothering them. I live every day of my life in just total, you know, sheer madness about the regrets or that one thing that I did that nobody else knows about and how messed up I am. So we chase after popularity and power and performance and possessions and perfection and we're trying to find a sense of self-worth and a positive self-image as a mother or father, as husband or wife, as a single person, young or old. And we're asking the things in this world, just give me some, some sense of self-value and self-worth. And then we take them and we say, God, here it is. I've got the job, I've got the power, I've got the money. I've got the possessions, I've got the popularity. God, is this what you want? Man, without unpacking everything, we have to look in God's word and find out what God says about us. Francis Chan said recently, one of the greatest sins of our generation is we value our own thoughts way too much. We value them above God's thoughts. We value... You value, I value our thoughts about us way too much, especially when it comes to the past. And we try to atone for our mistakes. We try to say, God, if I do this, I know you're going to love me. Just a little more popularity in the church. Just a little bit more power in the church. Just a few more steps to what I see as perfection, and then I'm good with God. 
Brothers and sisters in Christ, we need the gospel. You are valued by God. You are loved by God. You are not an accident that God now has to try to figure out what to do with. Like, I never saw this guy becoming a Christian. Never saw what that was going to do. What am I going to do with this big mess? We are changed by renewing our minds and pursuing Christ. The past will always occupy a place in your mind and your memory, but the gospel must have preeminence. We will always see our past sins. We will always see our weaknesses, but we are called to set our minds on Christ. Setting our minds on past sins and failures and weaknesses will lead to self-atonement, self-absorption, self-attestation, self-adoration. Setting our minds on Christ will lead to rejoicing in the one who has cast our sins as far as the east is from the west, from one scarred hand to another, if you recognize that music lyric, the one of whom it said, Lord, if, if you counted iniquity, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. It will cause us to cry out in great anger, anguish, yes. Who will save me from this body of death when I think of all those stupid things I did? but then lead to the great extinguisher. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's time, O Christian, to move on from your head knowledge and believe what God says about you. To believe what God has done with your past. Your past is not powerful enough to rob you of the future that God has promised. It may be strong enough to rob you of your joy in Christ in this life, but thanks be to God, the answer is in his name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to look ever only to you. For your honor, for your goodness, we thank you for the way in which you help us do so. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.